Al Jazeera podcast. Okay, just do what they told you. Smile and wave. Why, hello there. Oh, yes. Hello, everyone. Golly, what a day that was. The ticker tape fluttered down around us, and the New York crowds called out my name. Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. But it sure didn't feel like that at the moment. Thank you so very much. I didn't touch the controls the entire time. <laughs> Not that I didn't want to. My crewmates, Bill Stultz and Slim Gordon, flew the plane. A Fokker, a three-engine plane with eight seats. We flew from Trapassi Harbor, Newfoundland, all the way to Berryport in Wales, the United Kingdom. But I just sat on that plane like a sack of potatoes. But don't tell that to this crowd, or the reporters. What did I wear? Uh, well, it's cold up there, so I bundled up. It was all a publicity stunt. My first of many. I knew that was the deal when I agreed to join the crew of the plane Friendship. This was 1928 U.S. of A. There was no way the promoters of this flight were going to let a woman actually fly a plane across the Atlantic. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> but a thought occurred to me. Maybe I could turn this fame into opportunity. Maybe someday I'll try it alone. Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous would say if you ask them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrects some of the world's most notable figures. In this episode, we meet Amelia Earhart, undoubtedly the most famous female pilot of her era and possibly in history. This was the boon of aviation as entertainment, of barnstorming, air races, and ever longer long-distance flights. Amelia Earhart was a woman of many firsts. She broke aviation records, but she also challenged conventions about what a woman should do and what a wife should be. Question is, how did she pull it all off? Was it skill? Critics wonder whether she was even a good pilot or just the product of mass marketing of the all-American hero. In hindsight, did her daring and desire for fame result in her demise? She's got something to say about it all. Hindsight, you've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. I was born on the 24th of July, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas. My mother was Amy Otis, and my father was Edwin Stanton Earhart. Two years after me, my sister Muriel came along, but we all called her Pidge, and everyone used to call me Millie. Mama was a loving woman. She saw things a bit differently, too. 
She didn't want Pidge and me to be good little girls or any of that kind of nonsense that girls were supposed to be at the turn of the 20th century. Mama, let us run free. Hey, Pidge, look at this ramp I built. Yeah, it goes pretty darn high. Well, of course I'm going to try it out. Holy cow! Look at these scrapes on my elbows. You could say that I did my first flight at just seven years old. A risk taker from the start. I told you a bit about Mama already. Now Daddy, he was a lawyer. He worked off and on for a railroad company, which meant we moved around. A lot. Kansas City to Des Moines, St. Paul. As a youngster, I saw a hell of a lot of the Midwest. It also meant I changed schools a lot. It was hard to keep my grades up and keep friends. I really loved my daddy, but he drank. So, yeah, things weren't always great at home. Well, anyway, that was us. When daddy said it was time to go, well... Pidge and I just tried to think about it as our next adventure. There, there, Pidge. The next move won't be so bad. Anyway, we've hardly unpacked from our last trek across state lines. Adventure is worthwhile in itself. Adventure was how I had to look at it anyway. The reality was harder to face. When I was 17 or 18, Mama left Daddy for a bit and took Pidge and me to Chicago. With her parents' relationship on the ropes, Earhart was realizing there were few people she could rely on other than herself. The present was often tumultuous. She had little time to think of the future. I didn't have a plan. I just followed the same route as everyone else. I graduated from high school in Chicago, and thanks to some money we got from Mama's side of the family, I went to a fancy college near Philadelphia. It was a hoot, and I even became vice president of my class. But even though I did well in school, I didn't graduate. You see, something was still missing. I just couldn't put my finger on it. This is 1917, the year the United States entered the First World War. Aviation was evolving and becoming a crucial part of the fight. That Christmas, I went to visit Pidge in Toronto. Canada had been fighting since October 1914, you see, so the whole city was consumed by the war, making bombshells, machine guns, and all things of the like. I had planned to go back to school after the holiday, but changed my mind. I dropped out and joined the war effort instead. I became a volunteer at Toronto's Spadina Military Convalescent Hospital. My job was to work on voluntary aid detachment. You know, nursing wounded soldiers. That's where I got the idea to study medicine. But I can't say that lasted long. One day while horse riding outside the city, I saw something magnificent. Easy, fella. Let me get you some apples. 
Earhart wasn't the only woman to be inspired. As the First World War came to an end, more women took to the skies. Catherine Stinson was the U.S. Postal Service's first female pilot in 1918. The following year, her fellow airmail pilot, Ruth Law, flew to the Philippines. But piloting was still seen as a profession for the more capable, the more trusted. In Earhart's time... That meant men. After helping out wounded soldiers, I enrolled at Columbia University as a pre-med student. Of course, I wanted to be up in the air, but it just seemed unrealistic at that time. Pilot jobs for women were few and far between, so I thought I'd try to do something more practical. Everyone needs doctors, right? But I gotta be honest, some parts of medicine were just plain boring. So I left Columbia and joined my parents out in California. They'd gotten back together to see if they could make things work. I was 23 then and didn't need their parenting, of course. But I gotta admit, I wanted to see if I could, you know, help them stay together. Hidge and I had always been closer with Mama, but it was great spending time with Daddy again. Daddy, check out those planes! And as it turned out, he's the one who set me straight on what I was going to do with my life. What? Honest? You got me a ride? He took me to the Long Beach Air Show and bought me a demonstration ride for $10. Yes, sir. I'm all strapped in. Okay, let's go. Oh, we're getting off the ground. We're getting higher. My hands were sweaty, and my heart was pumping so fast, I felt like it was going to spring right out of my chest. I loved every second of it. By the time we had gotten two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to keep flying. Scared? Who, me? No, sir, I'm not scared. Can't you make this thing go any higher? Earhart had come to California uncertain about her future. Now she had found her calling. But more of that after the break. Welcome back. A month after Earhart's first experience inside a plane, she signed up for flying lessons. Anita Snook was my instructor. We called her Nita. We hit it off right away. We talked about religion, culture, philosophy, you name it. One time, we even started talking about the Quran. I asked her to try and read it, but she said to me, Amelia, there's no mention of Muhammad in the Bible. I loved Nida, but her response didn't make much sense to me. I suppose it was typical of the people around me. 
they just kind of accepted things as they were, instead of asking questions. But Nita wasn't so quick to accept my, uh, mistakes. Takeoff was pretty smooth, wasn't it, Nita? What's that? Watch out for what tree? probably crashed a bunch of times being a flight instructor and all what really that's your first time snook later said that perhaps she had misjudged Earhart's abilities snook was a great pilot but hers wasn't the only name to be lost in Earhart's shadow after classes i'd hang around the airfield talking to other pilots and picking up whatever knowledge i could there weren't many female pilots around, but the ones who were there had short hair, so I cut mine short too. I also bought a leather jacket like everybody else. I slept in it for three nights to give it that worn-in look. In 1921, I bought my first plane. I'd saved up some money working odd jobs, and Mama loaned me the rest— it was a bright yellow Kinner Airster. I called it the Canary. Together, we broke a bunch of records, like the unofficial women's altitude record by flying at 14,000 feet. I also entered a bunch of air rodeos. Amelia Earhart, ladies and gentlemen. I was in my mid-twenties and still had no plan. I wasn't thinking much about getting married either. That is, until I met Samuel Chapman, a chemical engineer from Boston. Samuel is so charming. We play tennis together and actually discuss philosophy. He doesn't just cite the Bible to me like so many others. He's... Different. In 1924, Samuel and I got engaged. And Mama and Daddy got divorced. It was a strange time for Amelia. While she was excited about her future with her fiancé, she struggled to find stability in her career. I'd done a lot of flying, but it just wasn't making me enough money. In those days, female pilots couldn't find steady work. And eventually, I just couldn't afford to keep the canary anymore. Selling that plane was devastating. But with the money, I bought a Kissel Roadster and drove across the country. I wasn't sure what to do next. Going back to university seemed like the smart thing to do. But money was tight, so I had to drop out again. I worked as a teacher and then a social worker to get by. I also did whatever I could think of that was related to aviation. I became a member of the American Aeronautical Society's Boston chapter in 1927. I worked as a sales rep for Kinner Aeroplanes in Boston, and I wrote articles about flying in the local paper. There is nothing as liberating as taking to the skies. 
flying alongside the birds is to push the boundaries of what human beings are capable of. Teaching, social work, flying. I was basically throwing whatever I could at the wall to see what stuck. But her luck was about to turn. In May 1927, aviation captured the nation's attention when Charles Lindbergh became the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic. After Lindbergh's journey, people wanted to see a woman repeat his heroics. In England, a billionaire heiress named Anne T. Phipps secured a plane called Friendship, with the intention of becoming the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. But when relatives expressed their concern over how dangerous the voyage could be, she dropped out. The Friendship flight team began looking for a replacement. Hello? Yes, this is Amelia Earhart. What's that? You want me to fly across the Atlantic? Oh, heck no. I don't need time to think about it. I'm in. I went down to New York to meet the flight organizers. One of them was a fella named George Putnam. Putnam was a publisher, a brilliant publisher. His connection would play a vital role in her rise to fame. Together, they worked to keep Earhart in the spotlight at all times. But I was disappointed after those meetings. Turns out, they just wanted me there for promotional purposes. The idea of just going as extra weight did not appeal to me at all. The promoter said the flight was too dangerous for a woman to pilot on her own. I'd show them. Pilot ready? Co-pilot ready. I hold him up back there, sweetheart. Sweetheart? Amelia Earhart, ready. <laughs> All right. We're ready for takeoff. I still went on the flight, of course. And when we got back to New York, I was treated like a hero. The first woman to cross the Atlantic. My name will go down in history for that. I didn't touch the controls. But maybe this will lead to better things for me. When we all got back, President Calvin Coolidge invited us to the White House. But I was still smarting from being forbidden to pilot the plane. How humiliating! I vowed that if I ever got invited back to the White House, it would be because of me flying the plane, instead of being like a sack of potatoes sitting there doing nothing. The flight over the Atlantic didn't get me any extra flying time, but it sure got me fame. And I had hoped fame would equal fortune. And fortune, well, that meant flying. George said the public attention wouldn't last unless we made it last. We had to strike while the iron was hot. So we got to working. He sat me down and told me to write a book about the flight. What was I supposed to write about? I didn't fly the darn thing. 
So I focused on my personal experience in the book. 20 hours, 40 minutes. Our flight in the friendship. George planned a whole book tour. He said we had to capitalize on the Lady Lindy nickname I got from the friendship flight. You know, Lucky Lind was Charles Lindbergh. So I got Lady Lind, I guess. Sadly, Samuel struggled to deal with my fame. What? What do you mean, when we're married, I won't fly anymore? You want me to choose between you and flying? You never can tell what I will do. I broke off the engagement in November 1928. I've got no problem with marriage, but I draw the line at a man controlling me. I'd remember that the next time a man tried to put a ring on my finger. Meanwhile, George Putnam was at work cultivating her image. He decided what she would wear and what she would say in public. He decided that Earhart should tousle her short blonde hair. He wanted her to play on the all-American boy look of Charles Lindbergh. Maybe that's what George Putnam's vision was all along, a new star to market. But somewhere along the way, he and Earhart found more in common than flying and publicity. Listen, he was married, so our relationship was strictly professional. But then he got divorced, and things started to change. That was around 1929. He proposed to me, and I said no. But boy, was George persistent. He must have asked me to marry him at least half a dozen times over the years. And I kept saying no. I didn't want another man in my life trying to control me. I was really busy doing tours and public appearances to raise money. I also created my own clothing line, Amelia Fashions. It gave a more feminine look to aviation suits. In the early 1930s, Earhart was in the skies more than ever, flying in exhibitions, doing stunts, and shorter flights across the United States. At 33 years old, Amelia Earhart was synonymous with female aviation. Everyone knew who she was. But critics from the time said her fame didn't match her talent. Some said she was simply a good pilot in a time of many great ones. Other women were breaking barriers in aviation, like Earhart's old instructor, Anita Snook. She was widely recognized as a talented pilot and was the first woman to run her own aviation business. Then there was Ruth Nichols. She would later be described as arguably the fastest, bravest, and strongest female flyer in the U.S. Nichols would go on to co-found the 99s, an organization for licensed women pilots. She started it with Earhart. With the 99s, I wanted to advocate for all the talented ladies up in the sky. There was more than enough pie to go around, so why not share it? The more opportunities for one, the more opportunities for all. Around this time, George and I were planning to recreate the trip across the Atlantic. Only this time, I would pilot the plane alone. 
Before that, though, I had some personal matters to tend to. George never gave up on asking me to marry him. And, like I said, you never can know what I will do. So finally, one day, I said, yes. But I had conditions. On our wedding day, I sent him my terms. Dear George, there are some things which should be written before we are married. Samuel Chapman said once we married, I wouldn't be flying anymore. I had to make it absolutely clear in writing that George could never ask the same. That's not all Earhart demanded. I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Please let us not interfere with others' work or play. Marriage can be so archaic, patriarchal. I was never going to let a man try and claim me. Oh, and there would be no traditional white dress for me. Heck no. I wore a brown suit to my wedding. But her marriage wouldn't last long. In six years' time, Amelia Earhart will disappear. My second trip across the Atlantic was coming up. I made sure that this time I would absolutely get my hands on the plane's controls. All right, George. So, I will take off from New York and head east, coming over Ireland and into the United Kingdom, then down to Paris. Five years after the first solo flight in the Atlantic, Lady Lind attempted to become the first woman to do the same trip. She was 34 years old. <sighs> now I'm in charge. I flew a red Lockheed Vega 5B from Newfoundland, Canada to Londonderry in Northern Ireland. The whole trip took about 15 hours. It was almost seamless. Almost. Twelve hours in. We're not far off now. Let's hold steady. Oh, all right. Let's bring it down. There were thick clouds and ice on the plane's wings. I wanted so badly to make it to Paris, like Lindy did. But I had to land the plane. I ended up in Northern Ireland instead. Despite the diversion, the trip was a success. And in aviation news, Amelia Earhart has become the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She completed this feat on 21 May 1932. This widely publicized success solidified two dreams for Amelia. International fame and flying full-time. When she wasn't in the air, she was lecturing about flying. I started being recognized quite a bit after that cross-Atlantic flight. Gotta say, I quite liked it. She also met another president, Herbert Hoover, in 1932. The U.S. Congress also gave her the Distinguished Flying Cross, and the French government gave her the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor. She also penned her second autobiography, The Fun of It. Opportunities started coming at me, left, right, and center. 
Aviation companies gave me honorary titles, probably to try and capitalize on my name. As long as I could keep flying, I'd take it. And she's done it, folks. Amelia Earhart is the first woman to fly solo nonstop coast to coast. Another record in the books. And I set the women's transcontinental speed record from Los Angeles, California to Newark, New Jersey. I'm just getting started. Hello, George? Uh, yes, yes, all went swimmingly. Where to next? And she's done it again, ladies and gentlemen. Amelia Earhart is the first person, you heard that right, the first person, man or woman, to fly from Hawaii to the mainland United States. While fans heaped praise on Earhart, the feeling wasn't universal. Critics said her 1935 flight from Hawaii was a promotional deal with sugar plantation promoters. They called her a showboater and fame lover. Some said her notoriety was more down to her connections, including her own husband, than her talents. People say I was looking for credit, but I just wanted to contribute to the public good. Critics were everywhere. But in my mind, they had two choices. Either go out and beat my records, or just shut it. Amelia Earhart smashes another aviation record. There were posters of me everywhere. I kept breaking records, including seven women's speed and distance aviation records. All within five years. I flew from Los Angeles to Mexico City. That was a record. Then I flew a 14-hour, 2,070-mile nonstop flight from Mexico City to Newark, New Jersey, also a record. And I did all this without a college degree. You know what else I did without a degree? I got a job as a female career consultant at Purdue University. I also worked there as a technical advisor to the Department of Aeronautics. I started thinking about one more record, one to surpass all records. She'd need to move quickly. Flying had become less of a novelty for the general public, but there would be one trip in Earhart's future for which the world would never forget her. We'll be right back. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Earhart's accomplishments were no longer holding people's interests. She did have one loyal fan, however. Jump in. My flight across the Atlantic made me a pretty good pal. Ready, Eleanor? Hold on tight, because here we go. We shared a passion for women's rights. Eleanor didn't sit back and do whatever people told her to. She was a very active first lady. You might even say she revolutionized the role. The pair became fast friends. 
In April of 1933, before that flight from Hawaii, she invited me to a dinner at the White House. George and I went. I wore a formal dress and had a swell time. But about halfway through, well, it got a bit boring. Hey, Eleanor, I have a bit of a wicked idea. We drove to a nearby airfield. Eleanor and I climbed into the cockpit and she rode in the co-pilot seat. She was probably the first person in that chair to ever wear a white silk gown and white kit gloves. Eleanor, hold on tight! Yippee! Rumor had it, Eleanor flew the plane. Hogwash! I take risks, but I'm not that careless. What do you think the boys at the White House would say if they found out? <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady of the United States, and Amelia Earhart, the First Lady of the Air. We had a hoot, but it was time to get down to business. Time to plan the biggest adventure of a lifetime. I was planning a flight around the world. A flight that would cement her name in the history books, but not for the reason she had dreamed of. I needed a top, top crew if I was going to pull it off. George and I recruited a cracking team. Captain Harry Manning, Fred Noonan, and Paul Mance. I knew Manning from his time as captain of United States Line's SS President Roosevelt. He brought me back from Europe in 1928 after the Atlantic crossing flight. His job was my first navigator. Noonan, the second navigator. He had lots of experience in marine and aerial navigation, so he was the perfect person for the job. We got Mance to be our technical advisor. He was a Hollywood stunt pilot. Together, we devised a sharp plan. We'd take off from Oakland, California, and fly west to Hawaii. From Hawaii, we'd cross the Pacific all the way to Australia. From there, there'd be a few stops across the Indian Ocean. And then it'd be on to India and Pakistan. After, Senegal, Chad, Sudan, and Eritrea. Then back to the U.S. where we'd stop in Florida before making our way back to California. A whole 28,000 miles. I bought a Lockheed 10E, a 10-seater high-performance aircraft with funds from the Purdue Research Foundation. We called it the Flying Laboratory. It was supposed to be a test bed for new equipment. All in all, it was a foolproof plan. In principle, the trajectory may have looked good for Earhart's crew. But there were some things that the group was unable to foresee, like unpredictable weather conditions and the limits of Earhart's humility. We took off on the 17th of March, 1937. The first leg of our flight caused damage to our plane. But we made it to Hawaii, landing on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. The plane was already in need of some repairs. 
The propeller hubs weren't properly lubricated, apparently. Three days later, we tried to take off again, but something went wrong. I had to take the plane back down onto the runway. Some observers say they saw a tire blow out. Paul Mance indicated it was a pilot error. Thing was, Amelia simply didn't know how to fly an aircraft of this size. She wasn't used to flying twin-engined machines. I was fine. Nobody was hurt. But the plane was in pretty tough shape. We had to ship it back to California for repairs. But I wasn't going to quit. We had to figure out a new plan. George and I managed to raise enough money to start again. But after nearly two months of waiting, both Manning and Mance dropped out. Manning had a prior commitment, and Mance reportedly left over a contract dispute. It was just Noonan and me after that. Because the weather patterns were different, we decided to reverse the flight plan. We'd fly east in a twin-engine Electra from Oakland. That way, we'd save the most brutal leg of the journey for the end. On the 21st of May, we finally took off. As expected, we made it pretty easily from Oakland, California to Miami, Florida. We stayed in Miami for a bit to do some publicity and then set off for Puerto Rico on the 1st of June. We landed in Port Darwin, Australia on the 28th of June. By now, the plane needed plenty of repairs. We fixed up what we could and carried on. We landed and lay Papua New Guinea on the 29th of June. We'd flown 21 out of 30 days. We took days off, of course, to rest, since flying is so focused and energy-intensive. We'd covered 22,000 miles, and the last leg was just ahead of us. Just 7,000 miles to go. Those last 7,000 miles were over the Pacific Ocean, which is known for its tough flying conditions. Like the strong winds that derailed Earhart's first attempt at round-the-world travel. We prepared as best we could and lay. We stowed away extra fuel on board and ditched the parachutes. What good would they be over the vast Pacific anyway? But before we could set off, I had a little matter to deal with. I caught dysentery and was bedridden for days. It didn't help my condition that my tummy was a bundle of nerves. All set, Noonan? But finally, we were able to get underway, and I was sure I'd soon circumnavigate the globe. Others had flown round the world before, but at 29,000 miles, Earhart's would be the longest round-the-world flight. Everything in order? Great! Let's get in the air! On the 2nd of July, at 12.30 a.m., we took off from the Ley Airfield in Papua New Guinea. Our next fuel stop was Howland Island, a small speck of land in the Pacific between Australia and Hawaii. Just a couple more stops now, 
I can already see the ticker tape parade. We will be heroes. Just you wait, Noonan. Howland Island is only 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide. It is also only 20 feet above the ocean waves, so it was always going to be tricky to find it. But at least she had a runway to spot. Despite the economic depression, her old friend Eleanor Roosevelt and the U.S. president used federal funding to build a runway on Howland. A bit cloudy out here, isn't it, Noonan? Hard to tell the clouds from the land. We had several contingencies in place to help us land. Noonan was ready to use celestial navigation to help us stay on course. In case the skies were overcast, we had communication with a U.S. Coast Guard vessel stationed just off Howland Island. Except for one key detail. Amelia hadn't learned how to use the radio. Her crew had begged her to practice, but she'd only done so on one occasion. This is the Electra calling the U.S. Coast Guard. Come in, Coast Guard. Come in, Coast Guard. We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Nah, don't worry, Noonan. We'll keep trying them. Hello? Hello? Coast Guard? Anyone? There was confusion between Earhart and the Coast Guard over which frequency to use. Not only that, the Coast Guard was operating on naval time while Earhart was operating on Greenwich civil time, meaning there was a 30-minute difference in check-in times. At 8.43 a.m. on the 2nd of July, 1937, Earhart spoke her last confirmed words. We are on the line 157 When the U.S. Coast Guard vessel realized they'd lost contact with Amelia's plane, they dispatched a massive air and sea search. They deployed 66 aircraft and nine ships to find the flyers. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt authorized an estimated $4 million for the operation. The search turned up nothing. On the 18th of July, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were declared lost at sea. George Putnam didn't accept it. He was convinced her heart was out there somewhere, or at least her remains would be. So he financed further operations to find her. He even consulted psychics. But on the 5th of January, 1939, 18 months after her disappearance, Earhart was legally declared dead by the Superior Court of Los Angeles. So what went wrong? Some decisions by the crew have come into question. Certain radio equipment wasn't taken on the final leg of their flight. The aircraft also allegedly carried less fuel than full capacity. Or as mentioned, the maps were old or the crew was operating on the wrong time zones, causing miscommunication with the U.S. Coast Guard. And what happened to the plane? Theories abound there, too, 
Some say she ran out of fuel and crashed into the sea. Others say that when Earhart and Noonan lost contact with the Coast Guard, she kept flying and landed on the Nicomaroro Reef, an uninhabited piece of land in the Pacific Ocean about 350 miles southeast of Howland Island. Investigations of the island did turn up improvised tools, clothing, an aluminium panel, and some plexiglass the width and curve of a plane's window, but that evidence hasn't been proven conclusive. Some people claimed they'd heard radio transmissions from Earhart herself shortly after her disappearance, but those two were never confirmed. One thing is for certain. Amelia Earhart was a pioneer who helped push boundaries for women in aviation and society in general. She may not have been history's best pilot, but she's certainly one of its most famous. All I wished to do in the world was to be a vagabond in the air. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Stance. This series was produced by South Podcasts. Their team is managing producer Tala Alisa, editor Morgan Waters, director, producer, and editor Tala Halawa, assistant producer Basant Samhut, associate producer Kaula Alhamuri, sound design by Taysir Kabani, assembly sound editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Justin Salhani. Research by Tarek Ayub. Fact-checking by Rawan Samamre. Special thanks to Candace Fleming for speaking to us about the character. Amelia Earhart is played by Emma Love. Extra male voices played by Adam Riley. Recording by 5A Studios and Coco Productions. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Lynn Enwin. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Asil Mansour is the manager of digital content strategy. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.